Chapter One of the Black Moth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tara Mendoza. The Black Moth by Georgette Hare. Chapter One At the Checkers Inn, Fallowfield. Chadber was the name of the host. Florid of countenance, portly of person, and of manner pompous and urbane. Solely within the walls of the checkers lay his world, that inn having been acquired by his great-grandfathers as far back as the year 1667, when the jovial Stuart king sat on the English throne, and the Hanoverian electors were not yet dreamed of. A Tory was Mr. Chadber to the backbone. None so bitter against the little German as he, and surely none had looked forward more eagerly to the advent of the gallant Charles Edward. If he confined his patriotism to drinking success to Prince Charlie's campaign, who shall blame him? And, if when sundry Whig gentlemen halted at the checkers on their way to the coast, and calling for a bottle of Rhenish, bade him toss down a glass himself, with a health to his majesty, again, who shall blame Mr. Chadber for obeying? What was a health one way or another, when you had rendered active service to two of his Stuart Highness's adherents? It was Mr. Chadber's boast, uttered only to his admiring Tory neighbours, that he had, at the risk of his own life, given shelter to two fugitives of the disastrous forty-five, who had come so far out of their way as quiet Fallowfield, that no one had set eyes on either of the men was no reason for doubting an honest landlord's word. But no one would have thought of doubting any statement that Mr. Chadbear might make. Mine host of the checkers was a great personage in the town, being able both to read and to write, and having once, when young, travelled as far north as London town, staying there for ten days, and setting eyes on no less a person than the great Duke of Marlborough himself, when that gentleman was riding along the Strand on his way to St. James's. Also, it was a not-to-be-ignored fact that Mr. Chadber's home, brewed ale, was far superior to that sold by the landlord of the rival inn at the other end of the village. Altogether he was a most important character, and no one was more aware of his importance than his worthy self. Two gentlemen born, whom he protested, he could distinguish at a glance. He was almost obsequiously polite, but on clerks and underlings, and men who bore no signs of affluence about their persons, he wasted none of his deference. Thus it was, that when a little green-clad lawyer alighted one day from the mail-coach, and entered the coffee-room at the checkers, he was received with pomposity, and scarce veiled condescension. He was nervous, it seemed, and more than a little worried. He offended Mr. Chadber at the outset, when he insinuated that he was come to meet a gentleman who might perhaps be rather shabbily clothed, rather short of purse, and even of rather unsavoury repute. Very severely did Mr. Chadber give him to understand that guests of that description were entirely unknown at the checkers. There was an air of mystery about the lawyer, and it appeared almost as though he were striving to probe mine host. Mr. Chadber bridled a little, and became aloof and haughty. When the lawyer dared openly to ask if he had had any dealings with highwaymen of late, he was very properly and thoroughly affronted. The lawyer became suddenly more at ease. He eyed Mr. Chadber speculatively, holding a pinch of snuff to one thin nostril. "'Perhaps you have staying here a certain uh, Sir Anthony Ferndale?' 
he hazarded. The gentle air of injury fell from Mr. Chadber. Certainly he had, and come only yesterday of purpose to meet his solicitor. The lawyer nodded. I am he. Be so good as to apprise Sir Anthony of my arrival. Mr. Chadber bowed exceeding low, and implored the lawyer not to remain in the droughty coffee-room. Sir Anthony would never forgive him, and he allowed his solicitor to wait him there. Would he not come to Sir Anthony's private parlour? The very faintest of smiles creased the lawyer's thin face as he walked along the passage in Mr. Chadber's wake. He was ushered into a low-ceilinged, pleasant chamber, looking out on to the quiet street, and left alone what time Mr. Chadber went in search of Sir Anthony. The room was panelled and ceilinged in oak, with blue curtains to the windows and blue cushions on the high-backed settle by the fire. A table stood in the centre of the floor, with a white tablecloth thereon, and places laid for two. Another smaller table stood by the fireplace, together with a chair and a stool. The lawyer took silent stock of his surroundings, and reflected grimly on the landlord's sudden change of front. It would appear that Sir Anthony was a gentleman of some standing at the checkers. Yet the little man was plainly unhappy, and fell to pacing to and fro his chin sunk low on his breast, and his hands clasped behind his back. He was come to seek the disgraced son of an earl, and he was afraid of what he might find. Six years ago Lord John Carstairs, eldest son of the Earl of Wincham, had gone with his brother, the Honourable Richard, to a card-party, and had returned a dishonoured man. That Jack Carstairs should cheat was incredible, ridiculous, and at first no one had believed the tale that so quickly spread but he had confirmed that tale himself, defiantly and without shame, before riding off, bound, men said, for France and the foreign parts. Brother Richard was left, so said the countryside, to marry the lady they were both in love with. Nothing further had been heard of Lord John, and the outraged Earl forbid his name to be mentioned at Wincham, swearing to disinherit the prodigal. Richard espoused the fair lady Lavinia, and brought her to live at the great house, strangely forlorn now without Lord John's magnetic presence. But far from being an elated bridegroom, he seemed to have brought gloom with him from the honeymoon. So silent and so unhappy was he. Six years drifted slowly by without bringing any news of Lord John, and then two months ago, journeying from London to Wincham, Richard's coach had been waylaid, and by a highwayman who proved to be none other than the scapegrace peer. Richard's feelings may be imagined. Lord John had been singularly unimpressed by anything beyond the humour of the situation. That, however, had struck him most forcibly, and he had burst out into a fit of laughter that had brought a lump into Richard's throat and a fresh ache into his heart. Upon pressure, John had given his brother the address of the inn, in case of accidents, and told him to ask for Sir Anthony Ferndale, if ever he should need him. Then, with one hearty handshake, he had galloped off into the darkness. The lawyer stopped his restless pacing to listen. Down the passage was coming the tap-tap of high heels on the wooden floor, accompanied by a slight rustle, as of stiff silks. The little man tugged suddenly at his cravat, supposing, supposing debonair Lord John was no longer debonair, supposing he dared not suppose anything. Nervously he drew a roll of parchment from his pocket, and stood fingering it. A firm hand was laid on the door-handle. Turning it cleanly round, the door opened to admit a veritable apparition, and was closed again with a snap. 
the lawyer found himself gazing at a slight, rather tall gentleman who swept him a profound bow, gracefully flourishing his smart three-cornered hat with one hand and delicately clasping cane and perfumed handkerchief with the other. He was dressed in the height of the Versailles fashion, with full-skirted coat of palest lilac, laced with silver, small clothes and stockings of white, and waistcoat of flowered satin. On his feet he wore shoes with high red heels and silver buckles, while a wig of the latest mode, marvelously powdered and curled, and smacking greatly of Paris, adorned his shapely head. In the foaming lace of his cravat reposed a diamond pin, and on the slim hand, half covered by drooping laces, glowed and flashed a huge emerald. The lawyer stared and stared again, and it was not until a pair of deep blue, rather wistful eyes met his in a quizzical glance that he found his tongue. Then a look of astonishment came into his face, and he took a half-step forward. "'Master Jack!' he gasped. "'Master Jack!' The elegant gentleman came forward and held up a reproving hand. The patch at the corner of his mouth quivered, and the blue eyes danced. "'I perceive that you are not acquainted with me, Mr. Warburton,' he said amusement in his pleasant, slightly drawling voice. "'Allow me to present myself. Sir Anthony Ferndale, à vous A gleam of humour appeared in the lawyer's own eyes as he clasped the outstretched hand. "'I think you are perhaps not acquainted with yourself, my lord,' he remarked dryly. Lord John, laid his hat and cane on the small table, and looked faintly intrigued. "'What's your meaning, Mr. Warburton?' "'I am come, my lord, to inform you that the earl your father died a month since.' The blue eyes widened, grew of a sudden hard, and narrowed again. "'Is that really so? Well, well. Apoplexy, I make no doubt.' The lawyer's lips twitched uncontrollably. "'No, Master Jack.' My lord died of heart failure. So you say. Dear me. But will you not be seated, sir? In a moment my servant will have induced the chef to serve dinner. You will honour me, I trust? The lawyer murmured his thanks and sat down on the settle, watching the other with puzzled eyes. The earl drew up a chair for himself and stretched his foot to the fire. Six years, eh? I protest his prodigious good to see your face again, Mr. Warburton. "'And I'm the Earl. Earl and High Toby, by God!' he laughed softly. "'I have the documents here, my lord.' Carstairs eyed the roll through his quizzing glass. "'I perceive them. Pray, return them to your pocket, Mr. Warburton. But there are certain legal formalities, my lord.' "'Exactly. Pray do not let us mention them.' "'But, sir—then the Earl smiled, and his smile was singularly sweet and winning.' "'At least not until after dinner, Warburton. Instead, you shall tell me how you found me.' "'Mr. Richard directed me to come here, sir.' "'Ah, of course. I had forgot that I told him my, my pied a terre. When I waylaid him, the lawyer nearly shuddered at this cheerful, barefaced mention of his lordship's disreputable profession. "'Uh, indeed, sir. Mr. Richard is eager for you to return.' The handsome young face clouded over. My lord shook his head. "'Impossible, my dear Warburton. I am convinced Dick never voiced so foolish a suggestion. Come now, confess. Tis your own fabrication.' 
Warburton ignored the bantering tone, and spoke very deliberately. "'At all events, my lord, I believe him anxious to make amends.' Carstairs shot an alert, suspicious glance at him. "'Ah!' "'Yes, sir, amends.' My lord steadied his emerald with half-closed eyelids. "'But why amends, Warburton?' he asked. "'Is not that the word, sir?' "'I confess it strikes me as inapt. Doubtless I am dull of comprehension.' "'You were not wont to be, my lord.' "'No. But six years changes a man, Warburton. Pray, is Mr. Carstairs well?' "'I believe so, sir.' replied the lawyer, frowning at the deft change of subject. "'And Lady Lavinia?' "'Aye,' Mr. Warburton looked searchingly across at him, seeing which my lord's eyes danced afresh, brimful with mischief. "'I'm very delighted to hear it. Pray present my compliments to Mr. Carstairs, and beg him to use Wincham as he wills.' "'Sir! Master Jack, I implore you!' burst from the lawyer and he sprang up, moving excitedly away, his hands twitching, his face haggard. My lord stiffened in his chair. He watched the other's jerky movements anxiously, but his voice when he spoke was even and cold. "'Well, sir?' Mr. Warburton wheeled and came back to the fireplace, looking hungrily down at my lord's impassive countenance. With an effort he seemed to control himself. "'Master Jack, I had better tell you what you have already guessed, I know.' Up went one haughty eyebrow. "'You know what, Warburton?' "'That you are innocent.' "'Of what, Mr. Warburton?' "'Of cheating at cards, sir.' My lord relaxed, and flicked a speck of dust from his great cuff. "'I regret the necessity of having to disillusion you, Mr. Warburton.' "'My lord, do not fence with me, I beg. You can trust me, surely.' "'Certainly, sir.' "'Then do not keep up this pretense with me, no.' nor look so hard, neither. I've watched you grow up right from the cradle, and Master Dick, too, and I know you both through and through. I know you never cheated at Colonel Dare's, nor anywhere else. I could have sworn it at the time. I, when I saw Master Dick's face, I knew at once that he, it was, who had played foul, and you had but taken the blame. No. I know better. Can you, Master Jack, look me in the face, and truthfully deny what I have said? "'Can you? Can you?' My lord sat silent. With a sigh, Warburton sank on to the settle once more. He was flushed, and his eyes shone, but he spoke calmly again. "'Of course you cannot. I have never known you to lie. You need not fear I shall betray you. I kept silence all these years for my lord's sake, and I will not speak now until you give me leave.' "'Which I never shall.' "'Master Jack, think better of it, I beg of you.' Now that my lord is dead, it makes no difference. No difference? T'was not for his sake? T'was not because you knew how he loved Master Dick? No. Then tis Lady Lavinia? No. But— My lord smiled sadly. Ah, Warburton! And you averred you knew us through and through. For whose sake should it be but his own? I feared it. The lawyer made a hopeless gesture with his hands. You will not come back. No, Warburton, I will not. Dick may manage my estates. I remain on the road. Warburton made one last effort. My lord, he cried despairingly, 
"'Will you not at least think of the disgrace to the name, and you be caught?' The shadows vanished from my lord's eyes. "'Mr. Warburton, I protest you are of a morbid turn of mind. Do you know I had not thought of so unpleasant a contingency? I swear I was not born to be hanged.' The lawyer would have said more, had not the entrance of a servant, carrying a loaded tray, put an end to all private conversation. The man placed dishes upon the table, lighted candles, and arranged two chairs. "'Dinner is served, sir,' he said. My lord nodded, and made a slight gesture toward the windows. Instantly the man went over to them, and threw the heavy curtains across. My lord turned to Mr. Warburton. "'What say you, sir? Shall we be burgundy or claret? Or do you prefer sack?' Warburton decided in favor of claret. "'Claret, Jim.' ordered Carstairs, and rose to his feet. "'I trust the drive has whetted your appetite, Warburton. For honest, Chadber will be monstrous hurt, and you do not justice to his capons.' "'I shall endeavour to spare his feelings,' replied the lawyer with a twinkle, and seated himself at the table. Whatever might be Mr. Chadber's failings, he possessed an excellent cook. Mr. Warburton dined very well, beginning on a fat duck and continuing through the main courses that constituted the meal. When the table was cleared, the servant gone, and the port before them, he endeavoured to guide the conversation back into the previous channels. But he reckoned without my lord, and presently found himself discussing the pretender's late rebellion. He sat up suddenly. "'There were rumours that you were with the prince, sir.' Carstairs set down his glass in genuine amazement. "'Aye!' "'Indeed, yes, sir.' I do not know whence the rumour came, but it reached Wincham. My lord said not, but I think Mr. Richard hardly credited it. I should hope not. Why should they think me turned rebel, pray? Mr. Warburton frowned. Rebel, sir. Rebel, Mr. Warburton. I have served under his majesty. The Carstairs were ever Tories, Master Jack, true to their rightful king. My dear Warburton, I owe not to the Stuart princes, I was born in King George the First's reign, and I protest I am a good Whig. Warburton shook his head disapprovingly. There has never been a Whig in the Wincham family, sir. And you hope there never will be again, eh? What of Dick? Is he faithful to the pretender? I think Mr. Richard does not interest himself in politics, sir. Carstairs raised his eyebrows, and there fell a silence. After a minute or two, Mr. Warburton cleared his throat. I... "'I suppose, sir, you have no idea of, uh, discontinuing your, uh, profession?' My lord gave an irrepressible little laugh. <laughs> "'Faith, Mr. Warburton, I've only just begun.' "'Only but a year ago, Mr. Richard.' "'I held him up. I. "'But to tell the truth, sir, I've not done much since then.' "'Then, sir, you are not, uh, notorious?' "'Good gad, no!' "'Notorious, forsooth! Confess, Warburton, you thought me some heroic figure. Gentleman Harry, perhaps?' Warburton blushed. "'Well, sir, I, uh, wondered. I shall have to disappoint you, I perceive. I doubt Bow Street has never heard of me, and, to tell the truth, tis not an occupation which appeals vastly to my senses.' "'Then why, my lord, do you continue?' "'I must have some excuse for roaming the country,' pleaded Jack. "'I could not be idle.' "'You are not compelled to, uh, rob, my lord?' Carstairs wrinkled his brow inquiringly. "'Compelled? Ah, I take your meaning. 
"'No, Warburton. I have enough for my wants. Now time was, but that is past. I rob for amusement's sake.' Warburton looked steadily across at him. "'I am surprised, my lord, that you, a Carstairs, should find it amusing.' John was silent for a moment, and, and when he at length spoke, it was defiantly and with a bitterness most unusual in him. "'The world, Mr. Warburton, has not treated me so kindly that I should feel any qualms of conscience. But if it gives you any satisfaction to know it, I will tell you that my robberies are few and far between. You spoke a little while ago of my probable all-fate on Tyburn-tree. I think you need not fear to hear of that.' "'I—it gives me great satisfaction, my lord, I confess,' stammered the lawyer, and found nothing more to say. After a long pause, he again produced the bulky roll of parchment, and laid it down, before the earl with the apologetic murmur of, "'Business, my lord!' Carstairs descended from the clouds, and eyed the packet with evident distaste. He proceeded to fill his and his companion's glass very leisurely. That done, he heaved a lugubrious sigh, caught Mr. Warburton's eye, laughed in answer to its quizzical gleam, and broke the seal. "'Since you will have it, sir!' business. Mr. Warburton stayed the night at the Chequers and travelled back to Wincham next day by the two o'clock coach. He played piquet and an ecarte with my lord all the evening, and then retired to bed, not having found an opportunity to argue his mission as he had hoped to do. Whenever he had tried to turn the conversation that way, he had been gently but firmly led into safer channels, and somehow had found it impossible to get back. My lord was the gayest and most charming of companions, but talk business he would not. He regaled the lawyer with spicy anecdotes and tales of abroad, but never once allowed Mr. Warburton to speak of his home or of his brother. The lawyer retired to rest in a measure reassured by the other's good spirits, but at the same time dispirited by his failure to induce Carstairs to return to Wincham. Next morning, although, he was not up until twelve. He was before my lord, who only appeared in time for lunch, which was served, as before, in the oak parlour. He entered the room in his usual leisurely yet decided fashion, and made Mr. Warburton a marvellous leg. Then he bore him off to inspect his mare, Jenny, of whom he was inordinately proud. By the time they returned to the parlour, luncheon was served, and Mr. Warburton realised that he had scarcely time left in which to plead his cause. My lord's servant hovered continually about the room, waiting on them until his master bade him go to attend to the lawyer's valise. When the door had closed on his retreating form, Carstairs leaned back in his chair, with a rather dreary little smile, turned to his companion. "'You want to reason with me, I know, Mr. Warburton, and indeed I will listen, and I must. But I would so much rather that you left the subject alone, believe me.' Warburton sensed the finality in his voice, and wisely threw away at his last chance. I understand tis painful, my lord, and I will say no more. Only remember, and think on it, I beg. The concern in his face touched my lord. You are too good to me, Mr. Warburton, I vow. I can only say that I appreciate your kindness, and your forbearance, and I trust that you will forgive my seeming churlishness, and believe that I am indeed grateful to you. I wish I might do more for you, Master Jack, stammered Warburton made miserable by the wistful note in his favourite's voice. There was no time for more. The coach already awaited him, and his valise had been hoisted up. As they stood together in the porch, he could only grip my lord's hand tightly and say good-bye. 
Then he got hurriedly into the coach, and the door was slammed behind him. My lord made his leg, and watched the heavy vehicle move forward and roll away down the street. Then with a stifled sigh he turned and walked towards the stables. His servant saw him coming, and went at once to greet him. "'The mayor, sir?' "'As you say, Jim. The mayor, in an hour.' He turned, and would have strolled back. "'Sir, your honour. he paused, looking over his shoulder. "'Well?' "'They're on the lookout, sir. Best be careful.' "'They always are, Jim. But thanks. Ye—ye ye wouldn't take me with ye, sir,' pleadingly. "'Take you? Faith, no. I've no mind to lead you into danger, and you serve me best by remaining to carry out my orders.' The man fell back. "'Aye, sir, but—but—' "'There are none, Jim.' "'No, sir. But ye will have a care.' I will be the most cautious of men. He walked away on the word, and passed into the house. In an hour he was a very different being. Gone was the emerald ring, the foppish cane, the languid air, too, had disappeared, leaving him brisk and businesslike. He was dressed for riding, with buff coat and buckskin breeches, and shining top boots. A sober brown wig replaced the powdered creation, and a black tricorn was set rakishly atop. He stood in the deserted porch, watching Jim strap his baggage to the saddle, occasionally giving a curt direction. Presently Mr. Chadber appeared with the stirrup cup, which he drained and handed back with a word of thanks and a guinea at the bottom. Someone called lustily from within, and the landlord, bowing very low, murmured apologies and vanished. Jim cast a last glance at the saddle girths, and leaving the mare quietly standing in the road, came up to his master with gloves and whip. Carstairs took them silently, and fell to tapping his boot, his eyes thoughtfully on the man's face. "'You will hire a coach as usual,' he said at length, "'and take my baggage to—' He paused, frowning. "'News. You will engage a room at the White Hart, and order dinner. I shall wear apricot and—' hmm. "'Blue, sir,' ventured Jim, with an idea of being helpful. His master's eyes crinkled at the corners. "'You are a humorous salter. Apricot and cream. Cream? Yes, tis a pleasing thought. Cream. That is all. Jenny!' The mare turned her head, whinnying as he came towards her. "'Good lass!' He mounted lightly, and patted her glossy neck. Then he leaned sideways in the saddle to speak again to Salter, who stood beside him, one hand on the bridle. "'The cloak?' "'Behind you, sir.' "'My wig?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Pistols?' "'Ready prime, sir. I shall be in news in time for dinner with luck.' "'Yes, sir. Ye—ye ye will have a care?' "'Anxiously. Have I not told you?' He straightened in the saddle, touched the mare with his heel, and bestowing a quick smile and a nod on his man, trotted easily away. End of chapter 1 Recording by Tara Mendoza Phoenix, Arizona May 2011